You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, they really don't need that much of an introduction. You know they've uh, been on for 12 years, over 600 episodes. They've won the People's Choice Podcast Award five times. They are boasting over 300,000 downloads per episode and over a million likes on Facebook. Actually, it's 1,115,958. Hold on. 59. (laughs) I held out so I could do it here. And I absolutely love their Facebook cover photo. They're dressed as the Star Trek landing party original series. So please welcome, without further ado, the cast of Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, July 1st, 2017, and we are presenting live from Nexus 2017. Joining me on stage are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, New York. And we are joined by our good friend from Down Under, Richard Saunders. Hello. Hello. Richard, this is your first time in New York City. I love it. New York. I mean, wow. It's just like the movies. And I must say, I was very pleased I went to Times Square last night for the first time at night. Blew my mind. But I was delighted to say that New York's keeping up with the times. I got a leaflet on the rapture. <laughs> Fantastic. I can't wait for that. You'll be pleased to know there's a passage in here. It says, what to do in case you miss the rapture. <laughs> Advice is stay calm and do not panic. (laughs) Thank you, New York. Douglas Adams told us that as well. (laughs) Don't panic. All right. So our our Nexus live show every year is always our memorial episode. And in fact, this whole thing kind of evolved, meaning Nexus kind of evolved out of the Perry DeAngelis Memorial (laughs) SGU show that we did in New York City. Uh, ten that, years ago. Ten years ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. That kind of sparked sparked Nexus. That's why it's nine years, right? Nine. This is the ninth one. Uh, and then we like to remember close friends that we lost uh, along the way, um, like Michael Orticelli, um, and recently um, David Young. Did we lost a new friend, David Young, who is the head of the Hong Kong skeptics, who who passed away this year from ALS. And he, again, these are all people. Mike Lassell, of course, as well, who's, who started out as our number one fan and then just became an integral part of our show. So these these are people who dedicated really a, you know, a large part of, of their life to supporting skeptical activism and working together with us. They're all dearly, dearly missed, but we will always remember them on the SGU. Thank On to something very special. I am, uh, I have to contact NASA right now. Actually, I'm going to contact 
Uh, mission Control. So Mission Control, this is SGU 627. We're ready for broadcast. Roger that, SGU 627. Initiate downlink connection now, please. SGU 627, Mission Control. We have received good data, ready to execute. Roger that, Mission Control. SGU 627, Mission Control, broadcast in 3, 2, I'm Colonel Jack Fisher, a NASA astronaut aboard the International Space Station. It's great to be able to join you today as a part of your Nexus conference. I wish I could have been there with you in person, but we're involved in a lot of activity here on the space station. Everything from making spacewalk repairs, to the arrival of commercial cargo supply spacecraft, to the challenges of conducting the important research we are involved in every single day. While I know many people focus on the skeptics part of Nexus, I know you're part of an organization that promotes science, critical thinking, and creative arts. Our most important reason for being here is science. During my time on the station, I'll be helping to conduct and supervise about 250 different experiments that range from testing and evaluating drugs for cancer treatment, rebuilding bone loss, to a variety of experiments that will provide us new insights on how the cardiovascular system reacts to lung flight. And each day on this amazing orbiting research facility, we collaborate with other nations to live and work together, which is critical to our future exploration beyond low Earth orbit. I want to thank you for your support and wish you the best of luck at your conference. And since you are scientists, after all, we're mostly interested in science, instead of flipping around just to prove that I'm in space, <laughs> I have a little demonstration. And you can't do this at home. <laughs> All right. When will the ball stop? Oh. It just does it by itself. That's cool. I hope you guys have a great conference. Goodbye from space. <laughs> who else? Who else right, well, I got two words. Who two got... words, Bob. Fuck yes! <laughs> <laughs> I, who else got goosebumps? Come on, that was amazing. That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, come on, everyone here is familiar with the three laws of robotics, right? Isaac Asimov got them memorized. For the one person who doesn't know what it is, that's the, if the, Isaac Asimov hypothesized if we had artificially intelligent robots, we would have to sort of build in, really cook into their fundamental hardwiring um, some laws so that they can't get out of control, right? So there won't be a, a robot uprising. The first and primary rule was that a robot can't harm a human being um, or allow a human being to come to harm, even just passively. And this is, it was a thought experiment, and although he built an entire series of books out of this thought experiment, a lot of nerds and geeks and computer scientists and like actually serious AI researchers have used, have taken this thought experiment further. And this is a recent article uh, that was actually published speculating that maybe there is a 
actually, this actually, Isomov already did this, I have to say, but a zeroth law, like a law that's even more fundamental than the first law, or in this way, in this case, they're actually saying you could replace all the laws with one law, and that is, you know, the, the law that they, they follow is that humans must flourish. So, which is an interesting approach to the whole laws thing. I think it's... I like it. It's, it's, yeah, so let's talk about... Just, we're not gonna, no, I promise you we won't spend the rest of the show talking about this, but... Um, <laughs> we, we can if you want. The, well, it's interesting. <laughs> so I think it's good in that it's, it is comprehensive, but it's really vague. I mean, so well, yeah. then how do you define flourish? Right. Yeah, that's, right. You would that's, need yeah. one law with 100 sub-laws yeah. you know, to be explicit. Otherwise, forget it. And right. is it saying each individual human being must flourish or the species must flourish? Well, it didn't say humanity. It said humans. But yeah, but that's exactly mm. the kind of thing that a robot's going to have to interpret. Mm. So like, if you have a serial killer, do they take them, that guy out because... More humans. So again, you're right, yeah. Bob. There's a hundred sublaws yeah. in there, and and so you, it almost becomes, you know, superfluous at that point because it's the hundred sublaws that are really going to be the laws of robotics, the meat, right? right. Yeah, right. The but it doesn't replace all of them because what is it? The third law that says um, it should protect itself yeah, at some point. Right. So it wants some kind of self-protection. But do I do it? like it as a supplement, like a one A 1A or whatever, to the the first law. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure I do, to be honest with you. I mean, because so much then depends upon how the robot interprets that. Could yeah. you say that animals on the farm flourish? That, right, exactly. Yeah. So they, they may decide, for example, that humans would flourish under our... If we looked rule. after. Yeah. 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 So like, they can't take care of themselves. So we need... So right. What, what, does flour, you know, what does flourish include liberty or just not dying? How about you could right. argue that the humans in the Matrix flourished in a way in yeah. their little pods, unconscious. I mean that, right? They yeah. kind of flourished. A robot might think that's flourishing, you know. Well, and also isn't so. this kind of moot? Do any AI or like robotics researchers actually take this into account? No, this is massively premature. Yeah, you know, yeah, is the yeah. bottom line. Well, and it's a thought experiment because in the books they actually the books largely are about. The manipulation of those laws, like yeah. that's what's where fun they about failed. it. Yeah. Yeah. Where they failed, right. the exactly. which is ironic that yep. you know we got these laws. Oh, these laws are great, but here's a whole bunch of stories on where they could go wrong. Right. I love the one where the robot is kind of trapped at a certain distance from an, from a dangerous area, so he's trying to protect himself, but then yes. uh, yeah, not not uh, let something else happen at the same time, and sort of the balance of those two, like this, the second and third commandment, had him trapped at this certain distance. Right. So anyway, that's the kind of that's the way that those laws would fail, and, right? And, right. And Isaac's laws were towards the end of the series. They ca- they came to the conclusion that these laws are good. They're good for scientists when interacting professionally with robots, not for everyday people. people everyday yeah. people. How about a kid? How about a kid giving an order to a robot? Like Jay, if your kid Dylan could order robots around, I would be very afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Holy shit! Yeah, so that's not good. All right, so this is where I took it. Think about driverless cars. Yeah. Just for fun, apply these rules to driverless cars. You know, we're, we're already talking about the, you know, the train uh, philosophical puzzle, like, you know, the train kill one person to save three people dilemma. Mm. And they're using that type of logic gate thinking to come up with how should the cars behave, because it's going to be a computer doing the whole thing. Now, it's not conscious, Mm. but it still has an algorithm that it has to go through to figure out who lives and who dies, literally. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the, we talked about that before, that they we're going to have to have algorithms built into you know, AI-controlled devices like cars that will 
take into consideration things like morals and ethics. That doesn't mean that they will have morals. It means yeah, but even humans don't agree on those yeah, moral yeah, and ethical yeah. quandaries. So how are these things going to be programmed in? And whether or not a robot is recursive, I don't think... Obviously, we've had this debate about whether or not they need to be conscious, mm-hmm, and yeah. you and I agree that they don't need to be conscious, right. but just because they're recursive doesn't mean they're going to be able to solve an ethical thought experiment any better than our best philosophers can. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to be an arbitrary distinction. Yeah, but we, we do that all the time, right? They're called laws, right? Mm-hmm. We, we pass laws, even though there's disagreements about exactly what they should be and how to interpret them, and then you, case law evolves. And I think those kind of algorithms, we'd make our best judgment. Yeah. There'd be a consensus, they'll evolve. You know, as incidents occur that challenge our current you know, algorithms, we'll tweak them. Um, so that, that's all happening. I think it's fun to talk about it ahead of time. Like, yeah, what sure. are we going to do? How are we going to... And imagine, I mean, these are, these are laws that... That would be running in virtual minds. You could run them in simulations. Over yeah. yeah. And oh, I see, would hope you would. Here's, a, here's a century of refinement that happened over the weekend. You know, and, and with, but, we, with virtual have, humanity. Yeah. Would there be a robot Supreme Court? Hey, that would, would we be able to raise robot, that to that our would be story. a great short story? We have to give this to our friend Brian Trent. So you have <laughs> the whole story. I, I want a percentage. Think about it, the whole story is about a, a robot uprising or robots who are trying to follow the laws, and but it leads them into a, into this. You know, place where they decide that they have to destroy humanity or take over humanity or enslave. They them. have to that, lovingly destroy us. To, yeah. Yes, <laughs> to protect us. Like we do with our, yeah, like and our your own good. For and your then own at the good. end, after humanity is destroyed, then you come back and the scientists are like, "All right, simulation number twenty hundred twenty eight hundred three right. failed. Let's figure out why that failed and tweak their algorithm and do it exactly. again." But right. what if there's a government decides that uh, their computers and robots don't need to abide by these laws? Would get well, robot yeah. wars or something? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Those that's are for civilians. Think, yes. Who, who right. imposes these? Laws on the robots. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Right now, there's no bo- no international mm-hmm. body that necessarily that does that. It's- yeah, what was interesting about Asimov was that <clears throat> those laws were baked into the positronic brain itself, yeah. and, and there was actually no way no way to disentangle them to yeah. create a brain without those laws. So All right, his out. Moving on, I'm showing a picture of a very well preserved fossil. Um, this fossil is about 234 million years old. It is of a species called Eusorophagus dalsisoi. That's not probably not too too bad. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah, Eusorophagus. This is only the second specimen of this species that we've ever ever found, and this is a basal reptile, right? So it's it's fairly soon after the evolution of reptiles themselves. This is a juvenile. It's covered with armor plating, and it's got spikes all around the outside, so it's cool. Not a dinosaur, <laughs> just a basal um, uh, reptile. But you, looking at that picture, guys, you could look behind you. What do you think is special about that fossil, the fossil itself? It looks like an alligator. Yeah, it's a reptile. It's an armored reptile. The, the ribs look pretty complicated. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. I mean, it's, it's just really well-preserved. It's, it's really well-preserved. Yeah. It's actually, they're, they're saying this is a 100% intact fossil. Yeah. Oh, intact. I don't bone. see any missing bone. Yeah, they have every bone. Never heard is, that before. Which yeah. is rare. I know, I've never read that. That's why I threw this up there. Like, wow, I've never read that exactly. Even the head, the head looks a little messed up. It's yeah. messed up, but all the bones are there. They're just crushed under the weight. Yeah. Yeah. Does, right, it, right. does it show an outline of soft tissue there, or I'm not seeing that correctly? I don't think so. Those, that outline are spikes around the outside of the armor. I think it's what you're seeing there. So the other thing, that one little interesting tidbit here is they thought that these creatures were largely aquatic based upon the 40% first specimen that Mm. they had. But this 100% specimen, they realized, nope, this was a terrestrial animal. It may have gone into the water, but it was not... not 
tweaked for swimming. It was tweaked for walking on land. So this was, that changed our con conception of this species. Not surprising, it's only the second fossil we found of it. And but it, it's small, Steve. I don't know that they can yeah, see you the can measurement see two on millimeters, that. it's small. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, actually cute. small. Oh, because it, it looks like it's the size of an alligator. To right. Me. Yeah, yeah, it has a crocodilian-like shape yeah. to it a little bit. So Richard, yeah. uh, over the conference we have been talking a little bit about just the skeptical endeavor. How are we doing? What should we be doing? Are we making any progress? And uh, I, you know, as an American skeptic, I often look to the UK and Australia, see how they're doing. And honestly, we've been saying for the last couple of years, you guys down under are kicking ass. You really are. <laughs> and <laughs> and on this issue in particular, uh, homeopathy. So tell yeah. us, give us an update on what's going on. We, we I mean, I, it's good. I'm pleased to say it. We do have our successes. But th there's one thing that, that holds us back, and it's, it's a terrible thing to admit, but Steve, I've never had a quickie with Bob. <laughs> wow. 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 Jesus, Bob, you you really got fans now, man. <laughs> wow. Okay. You paid them well, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was a little premature, Richard, but we'll go. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Um, I, had to work I don't know how you do quickies in Australia, but gird your loins. Upside down. <laughs> upside down. <laughs> so, uh... Did you say upside down? All right. Okay. So, yeah, okay, quick. All right, I, I've got to be quick. This is going to be difficult. Um, so two scientists have advanced this idea, this theory, this hypothesis that gra uh, advanced gravitational wave detectors uh, can at some point in the future perhaps detect gravitational waves, which are ripples in space-time caused by titanic events like colliding black holes, that reveal these hidden dimensions that... Uh, that beyond the three dimensions of space and time that we, that we know today. So I need this to happen. I need new physics. I need new particles because the LHC hasn't found squat in half a decade. Yeah, but Brian, found, what the hell is up with that? Brian found, Yeah, It's your fault. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> Brian Leonard, back me up here. They haven't found anything. The Higgs boson, wow, that was great, but that was five years ago. They're looking, they're looking at higher energies. They haven't found dark matter, no particles for dark matter, no cousins or siblings of Higgs, no leptoquark, and no super, super symmetry, symmetry particles. Yeah. Hello. They've been looking for 30 years. They've been thinking, yep, we're going to find them tomorrow, and they have not found them. It looks like they may not even be there, and that's crazy. Bob, your attitude sucks. <laughs> no, Jay, it's, I'm just, come on, I want stuff to happen. Well, give them so, time, man. That, that machine so takes like five weeks to turn theories. on, you know? I mean, <laughs> true. This theory, you know, the community has invented it, could be a long shot, but um, it's interesting. So what their idea is that, that if you look at these gravitational waves at some point in the future from advanced uh, you know, machinery, uh, you know, like LIGO 5.0 or whatever, they, you could observe the effects of hidden dimensions. So one of the effects that they think they may find is something called breathing mode, which means that there's some deformation to the gravitational waves that are distinctive of hidden dimensions. So that's one way, that's one thing they could find, although that would take something like three LIGOs you know, LIGO times three to potentially detect that. Um, the other thing that they may uh, have an effect is called massive tower. I'm not sure where that came from, but that basically means that very high frequency gravitational waves, say a thousand hertz, a thousand cycles per second. Um, that would be wonderful, um, but they would need a sensitivity of about three orders of magnitude, at least three orders of magnitude, and maybe even more than that. Um, and that's going to be really, really tough, because you, know, like a lot. you yeah. know how sensitive they are. These LIGO right now is sensitive to the like, wolves walking on the, on the backyard of where they're recording this, so super sensitive, the most sensitive device in, in history. Uh, but if they do detect those waves, it would be 
that would kind of be clear evidence, like, wow, because we have no idea how these high-frequency gravitational waves would be produced other than hidden dimensions. So that would be a great discovery. But, of course, there's skeptics. Um, don't you hate skeptics sometimes? They can just be so annoying. Um, one guy is um, some punk named Bob Agaria. He's a professor of theoretical physics at King's College, whatever, right? He's, he's, saying, he's saying stuff like, well, you know, these frequencies are going to be too high. We're not going to be able to detect them. Or he thinks that if we do detect them, it doesn't make sense because the, the hidden dimensions would, would be too big to be detectable. So, so he's a little skeptical. And, uh, but hopefully this Bob is right and that Bob is, is wrong. So that, that was your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you, too. <laughs> Thank you. I have now had a quantum quickie with Bob. <laughs> I hope you're satisfied. I'm very satisfied. <laughs> I don't know when you I've didn't had get enough. out of your news item, Richard. You still got to tell us about home. I better be quick now. Okay, so yes, <laughs> very kind words. We uh, it, we're, look, we're all in this for the long game. We really are. We have to work at things and work at things. And I know people come and go and they get burnt out because the progress isn't quick enough. I, we look at things in terms of decades, but things do happen. Now, homeopathy in Australia, I imagine it's the same in every first world country. It's entrenched to an extent, but we have had some some successes of late. Now, just briefly, there the major, I guess, outfit in Australia pushing homeopathy is an outfit called Homeopathy Plus. And I get their regular newsletters, which are every week, twice a week, I think. And they bring us stories like, uh, are homeopathic remedies made from pork? Homeopathy officially recognized in Switzerland, whatever. Canine, canine bone cancer trial. Just, they gather news and bits and pieces like this. They came under fire a few years back. Uh, 2012, around 2012, when they were recommending homeopathic treatments to prevent and treat radiation sickness. This was after the Fukushima reactor. So they like shine a light on you or something? Well, they, they say one of the recommended homeopathic remedies includes x-ray. Yeah. How do you water down an x-ray? Well, yeah. Just give like one photon? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Um, it, it, well, please bear in mind, but from these people's point of view, homeopathy works. That's their point of view completely. So anything that sounds crazy to us, to them, is completely rational and makes sense. Because homeopathy works. In and you know, just as a side point, Richard, because I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to homeopaths, and of course, you know, you confront them on the lack of evidence and plausibility and all that sort of stuff. And they always say the same thing. Like, well, how do you, how do you know it works? And their answer is because I've seen it work. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I've seen yeah. it work. I've seen it work in my practice. It's the ultimate it evidence personally. for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. it's anecdote. Yeah. And so that's that, then, that then becomes their starting point. So it doesn't matter how crazy it is. They know it works. They know it works. So all they, they can only conclude that we just don't know how it works. Yeah. And I know it are. works because it works for me is yeah. the other one. Yeah. That's, that's pretty tough. In 2012, uh, during our uh, annual convention in Australia, we'll get to more about that soon, when James Randy, uh, Randy was our special guest, our annual Bent Spoon Award for the most preposterous piece of paranormal or pseudoscientific piffle was awarded to Fran Sheffield, who runs Homeopathy Plus. And it was great to have James Randy read that out. For advocating the use of magical sugar water in place of tried-and-true vaccination for many deadly diseases, most noticed, notably whooping uh, cough. Now, because this Homeopathy Plus outfit were promoting homeopathy for whooping cough, 
This did actually lead to government action against them, and in 2015, the federal court in Australia ordered Homeopathy Plus to pay penalties of $115,000 for promoting this, which was... That number doesn't even seem high enough yeah, to me. Yeah, it's very low. Yeah, it's yeah. amount. Well, yeah. it's... Okay, you look at it that way, but from our point of view, it's a court victory against yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's, it's a, right, that's, it's a that's, ruling in the right direction. That's pretty definitely. important. And according to the Australian dollar, well, I don't know, it's probably a lot of money in Australia. <laughs> uh, plus costs, plus legal costs, which is yeah. substantial, mm -hmm. which, is, which yeah. was really great. Yeah, because they, it sounds to me legal costs could have been ten could times been, that, yeah. right? A lot more. Yep. So, uh, and there's another outfit in Australia called Brower, which, now there was, James Randi held up a packet yesterday. Of Highlands. Yeah, I guess Highland. it's uh, the equivalent. When you go to a pharmacy in Australia and you go to the natural section or whatever, it's the Brower range you'll probably find. And when I pop the pills back in Australia in public talks, it's the Brower sleeping pills that I guzzle down. Uh, and it gets amazing reactions when people don't realize what we know. Yeah. They're, they're really harmless. So the Australian government, the National Health and Medical Research Council, which is an arm of the Australian government, released a paper um, about uh, in, in 2015 on alternative medicine, and one of their conclusions was the National Health and Medical Research Council today released a statement concluding that there is no good quality evidence to support the claim that homeopathy is effective in treating health conditions. That was pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something we've got in our arsenal now. And not so long ago, earlier this year, the Therapeutics Goods Administration, uh, and again a government arm, was seeking comments by the general public and concerned people, uh, for a new framework about uh, regulation on low-risk products, which homeopathy falls into that category, low-risk products. That's how they can get away with putting all sorts of things in the pharmacy, because there are uh, less regulations. Just uh, last week or the week before, the interim report, so this is their findings so far, concluded or is going to recommend that homeopathy homeopathic products be no longer sold in pharmacies. This is yes. huge. This is very hopeful, very hopeful. And you can imagine the homeopaths are... Well, it confirms all their, what they know is fact, that it's a conspiracy, right? The right. government conspiracy right. against them. The other recommendation it looks like they're going to put forward is that... Um, alternative medicine and real medicine be separated in the pharmacy. So you never get to a situation where you look at a long shelf of medication and it's sort of mixed up. Mm -hmm. That's that's wonderful. That's that's a big plus. They as should far just as label concerned. all the old... I come up with like an icon that everyone can recognize, you know, like a bull taking a crap or something. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on all the alternative medicine stuff. Just... And uh, so, so that's, that's, in a nutshell, um, it's appropriate when you're talking about homeopaths, in a nutshell... <laughs> That's what's happening in Australia, but believe me, folks, it's, it doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of work, not only by uh, people like the Australian skeptics pushing hard, there's the Friends of Science and Medicine, mm -hmm. which are a wonderful outfit in Australia. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a long process, but what I want to say, Steve, and I'll pass it over to you for a quick comment. There's a movie just about to hit Australia called Just One Drop. 
um, which is advocating homeopathy. And I mentioned, Steve, because you appear in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. So this was, like, I, I think this is maybe now five years ago they filmed me for this. Five years? Yeah, a long time. Whatever. I, it's probably a bad sign for them that it's taken so long to get it out. Yeah, but and, you don't age. You look just the same. In the- <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had a long conversation with the, the, the showrunner, the person who was basically producing the show, the documentarian, about homeopathy because... You know, I always have to think, to what, should I accept this? Should I do this? And, and it's a long calculation, but I figure, okay, well, I can, I'm not going to make it worse by being in it. You know, they could try to exploit the fact that I'm in it, but you have to make sure you never say anything that could be taken out of context. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know how that worked out. But I could not convince the producer that homeopathy wasn't legitimate. I mean, just she was unconvinced. She already made her conclusion. She wasn't investigating homeopathy. She was setting out to prove it. Yep. So I... I Thoroughly expect the movie to be to be nonsense. Yeah, my guess is they're going to dilute what you said. Oh, yeah. oh. oh Evan! <laughs> Good grief! But but just before I, I end my little segment, um, of course I bring uh, the New York area and this conference official greetings from the Australian skeptics. Skeptics.com.au. I have some free magazines for the first people who want to come up and grab them, our, our journal. We've been going since 1981. We're wow. one of the oldest skeptical outfits. And uh, if I do say so myself, we do kick goals. So thank yes. you. Thank you, Richard. It's, it's not outer space, but we'll take it. You know, Australia's kind of far, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, skepticzone.tv. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Kara... So should women should women eat their placenta or feed it to their kids? Hmm. Oh my god. That that photo behind yeah. us is actually placenta. That's yeah. That um, was lunch everyone good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice segue, Steve. So there are there are a few companies that do this. Uh, Puget Sound Placenta, Northern Virginia Placenta Specialist Collective. Placentas are us. Yeah, anyway. right. <laughs> the um, the Austin Womb Collective. <laughs> um, that one, I like that, is that one. Real? Uh, yeah. And so what happens is women before they give birth will register with these companies, pay them a fee, and then the placenta is removed and. Um, somehow, you know, made inert, like frozen or something like that, sent to these companies, and then the companies will process the placenta. Um, There's no standardized way to do this. Some of them freeze-dry, some of them dehydrate, grind it up into a powder, and then encapsulate it, like you see there. Um, So there's a report that actually came out... um, in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, um, where they just talk about new new stories. Of, it's always um, a little ominous. Yeah, it's ominous. I mean, the morbidity and mortality. I know report. this it's person. Not a good thing. This yeah. person didn't die, but was became violently ill, and. Um, uh, no surprise, it was from eating placenta, and it wasn't actually mom that became so critically ill. It was her infant. So, yeah. So what happened is that um, an infant presented with a streptococcus infection, strep, and her throat became so swollen that it was difficult for her to breathe. And they brought her into the hospital in Oregon and did a strep test, found that she was positive, gave her, and luckily it was not um, antibiotic resistant, so she was able to take amoxicillin. It was a long course, something like a 10-day course. She was in intensive care, and then they were able to release her from the hospital. And three days later, she presented with strep again and came back in, went back into the NICU, 
and doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. How is this baby contracting strep so readily? One of the nurses or physicians was looking through mom's chart and realized that mom had had her placenta prepared. And so when they asked her further, are you, are you inge- did you ingest it? What are you doing with the placenta? She says, yeah, I'm taking these pills three times a day. They, um, they told her to stop taking them immediately. They took the pills, tested the pills, and they were positive for a genetically identical strain of strep. Whoa. So it turns out that mom's pills were infected, she was taking them, and strep can pass through um, digestive tract and through skin. And she was likely passing this infection onto her infant child. And obviously, unbeknownst to her, her child was just getting ill and nobody could understand why. It, it was not, I think, in the forefront of anyone's minds. So, you know, I think what this story really illustrates is that there's a lot of obviously pseudoscience, especially in medicine um, or alternative medicine, I should say, um, eating eating a placenta is nothing new. People talk about it all the time. And the people who wrote about this for popular media really focused on the celebrity angle because people like Kim Kardashian have famously eaten um, their own placenta. People like Alicia Silverstone, they talk about it. They show pictures on their Instagram. And what kind of better way to influence a shitload of people than to have somebody with millions of followers on social media talking about the health benefits. They talk about how it prevents postpartum depression, how it uh, helps with depleted nutrient, none of which has any scientific evidence to back it. Yet you have a healthy, beautiful, you know, genetically perfect human being talking about how when they were pregnant, they ate their placenta and look how, you know, shiny my hair is and look how much I didn't have, <laughs> look how much I didn't get sad after my baby was born. And so people will do this. Um, Kara, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. So clarify, it, where did the strep come from originally? The placenta itself. The placenta itself was likely infected. I mean, they can't say colonized. for sure. No, yeah. But it could and have... Strep, it could, strep's a common... Exactly. Uh, strep is really infection. common. Okay. But, I mean, they can't say for sure that the placenta itself was carrying it while, when she was giving birth. Um, it could have been that a, a technician in the lab where it was packaged. Oh, okay, yeah. it, you know, you, there's no way to know that. All they know is that the genetic signature of the placental um, pills was the exact same as the infection. That the, so they so, know that the baby got the infection from those pills going through mom's body. So do you, did, does breast milk have anything to do with this? Um, they actually tested her breast milk, and it was negative, okay, which is good. why they were confused at first, and they couldn't figure out how baby was getting um, getting this. So they think it was actually a physical contact, a skin contact mm-hmm. infection. Um, luckily, baby's okay. Baby didn't die. Mom is okay. Um, and learned, obviously, a really important lesson there. But I think, again, the reason that these kinds of stories are really important to tell is because a lot of times when we think about alternative medicine, and even, you know, Richard was talking a little bit about how in um, Australia, these are considered like low-risk things, right? Because, of course, a sugar pill, a pill with just water in it, can't possibly make you sick. But I was nervous watching Randy eat all of those sleeping pills (laughs) simply because if it's pure uh, homeopathy, it's fine. The problem is, we don't know what's in those things because there's no regulatory mechanism in place and just like there's no protocol for how hot do you heat up the placenta when you're cooking it before it's encapsulated you know it needs to be heated up for something like like a hundred actually this these field notes give it a formula um 
for how for how high this thing should. Oh yeah, 115 to 116 degrees Fahrenheit is how the company says that they did it. But that, for example, is not high enough to kill strep, and it might not be high enough to kill um, salmonella either. Mm-hmm. So it would be very easy for these pills to contain infectious agents. There's no regulation for how they're packaged. It's not medicine, which means it's not a legitimate pharmaceutical company that's yeah, you're, actually you're putting these trusting things a quack company. You're to, trusting to a do quack it company, right. and yeah. it's the same thing. I mean, you mentioned Highlands, the the. Um, the, the baby Belladonna, teething, yeah. yeah, had belladonna at strengths that were that was risky to infants. Like they weren't even doing good homeopathy, <laughs> and they were putting these babies. Hey, hey, at good risk. homeopathy doing yeah, what? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> they weren't they weren't doing it by the book. You need to dilute it more so it's less uh, yeah. risky. Please be competent in your pseudoscience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, we do have to reinforce the, the idea that eating your placenta is just silly. There's it is. no science there. I mean, the notion that there's some, it's a superfood, there's some nutrients in there. What, there's nothing in there that you can't get from food. No, there's so much you know? folk wisdom behind it. You know, a lot yeah. of people argue, yeah, but all mammals eat their placentas. Well, my dog eats his own throat. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's right. My dog eats its own shit. Yeah, so, exactly. Right. I can, that I can logic, top that. Yeah. I can top that, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> all right. I'll try. John, no, 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 no. I hope right. Not. And also, yeah, animals in the wild are living on the brink of starvation all the time. Mm-hmm. And that is not our problem in the West, at least. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> let's move on. Right all right. Now. Who knows what this number is? Don't shout it out. I do. So, all right. I'm gonna give it, if you know what this number is, give me a clap now. Wow. All right. Good on you. Wow. No, Brian's in the back going, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, you knew what this was. I yeah. showed it to you. Yeah. What is it? Planks constant. Planks constant. Quantum of action. So it's 6.626069934 times 10 to the minus 34, and that's what units. You know what the units are? Oh, you bastard. <laughs> it's it's uh, energy times time, so it's joules per second squared, oh, per second minus one. And it's, um, yeah, it's kilograms per meter squared time, times... Uh, seconds to the negative one or something. Or just that's just joule seconds, oh, right? Joule seconds. Joule yeah, seconds. Joule second. Second. Thank so you. Basically, showing that energy is quantized. Bottom line, energy is right? quantized. Right. Exactly. Big, so why am I showing? Very important. Number? Very important. Big so thing. yeah. So that's a fundamental aspect of the universe. So I was thinking when I was looking at this number, wouldn't it be cool? And what would you guys if the number were six point six six exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Like then, even uh, as a skeptic, I would go, that is damn curious. <laughs> <laughs> that's love a it. pretty amazing I would love it. Can I ask for clarification? That's a, a mind-fuck my God. <laughs> when you say energy is quantized, quantized, right? it quantized. means it comes in discrete <laughs> packets, right? Right. It's not inf- infinitely variable. It's so chunks, it's chunks of energy. I don't want to derail Steve's item, okay. but what it sounds like when you say packet that it's contained in something, it's not contained in something. It's just... What? I don't know it what it is. just means you can't cut it anymore after a certain level. Like a, like you a can't unit divide of energy it. can't get smaller than, right. than yes. that. Yes, there's a certain point where you can't divide it anymore. Right. But does it apply to... But uh, what? Wait, 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 okay, I got it. I think I have a proper question here. It's formulated. <laughs> you know, energy can be in many different forms. Sure. So what is the quantum... Like, lots wh- of different things. Like, think of it in terms of like electron orbits. You, can't, you have discrete orbits. You can't have... Suborbits that are in between other orbits. They are discrete orbits, which is for, you know. An electron can't gain or lose less energy than the Planck constant. Okay. That's one way You didn't answer my question, but. Yeah, they did. You're, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to <laughs> what makes up, I, go, I hear what you're saying. Right? Like, like wait, yeah, the think about all the forms that energy can be in, but when you go you're, down. You're asking for a theory of everything we don't have yet, basically. Uh-huh. That's, <laughs> that's, that's bullshit then. And what's with the formula? <laughs> all right. So, 
The reason why... It's just a big number, guys. Forget it. This news item is... It's actually a very, very small number. It's tiny. Look at that. See that? They can't even agree if it's big or small. This is a nonsense. So knowing the size of the Planck constant very precisely is an important thing. And one of the things we do with that information, if we can get our measurement of it precise enough, we can use it as a way of establishing standard, which is why... NIST, which is the National Institute of Science and Technology, um, is trying to, they have, a, they have a, a threshold. If we can get three different labs to measure um, the uh, Planck's constant with a precision of less than 50 parts per billion, and one of them at less than 20 parts per billion, then they will conclude that um, we know it precisely enough that we can use it as the basis for the standard kilogram, right? So oh. instead of having a chunk of metal be our kilogram, they want to say it's this number of planks, whatever. They want to be able to make it a, a related to the actual physical universe, an objective standard. Um, so we are now past that threshold. Wow. That's the new as of. So, so, so are you wow. saying then that this could lead to a global standard for all measurements? Yes, yes. Which that's, would be that's amazing. What I'm yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah, so they, um, two actually labs using uh, a technique called the kibble balance. I'm not going to try to explain this in technical detail, but basically it's a, it's a very sensitive balance that uses electromagnetic interactions on, basically in the springs of the balance. Oh, it's an actual balance. Yeah. Oh, okay. Isn't yeah. that when you have two dog food bowls next to each other and just evenly <laughs> spread them? Yeah, yeah kibble. That's, that's what right. it is, Jay. So right. to, they use that to measure Planck's constant, and one uh, did it to within... 13 parts per billion, Ooh. and then the Canadians, they actually have the record. They did it to 9.1 parts per billion. And then Canadians. A, there's a third lab that did it. They used a different method. They think they used something to do with Avogadro's number. You have to literally count every atom in a block, a sphere Ooh. of some metal. Mm. And you got that? So then, um, yeah, so with those three techniques, they have three independent measures. They're all less than 20, so we actually exceed... 20 awesome. months, they exceed the limit. So, so now this will probably be the ba new basis of the kilogram once they figure out exactly how to do that. Right, but, but is this going to have a dramatic change to what the current state of the kilogram is? Or is well, it going to round it up to whatever the nearest... Yeah, but they're going to round it to within a Planck constant. So I think we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know so what I'm saying? I, I, well, cause I'm going with this is like when I tell people I lost weight, <laughs> I can really be like, I lost weight today. I, you I know? lost a Planck constant. I lost, constant. Constant. I lost I like two scale. units of energy. Yeah, your scale will never be this sensitive. So I don't think you have to worry about it. Steve, what's going to happen to that kilogram? What's going to happen to that kilogram? Sell it on eBay or something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah the actual... His, of historic yeah. significance. Were any of those labs in Germany that did this work? Um, I mean, are there any Germans in the audience right now? I don't know. Is it making yes. you crazy when you hear us say Planck over and over? It's a Planck's constant. Max Planck. Max, Max Planck. Planck. Max Planck. <laughs> Planck. 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 It's a Planck constant. <laughs> Richard, say, say it. Planck. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in New York too long, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Three days. Does that, does that right. mean? Does that mean that the United States will adopt the metric system? Uh, Confused no. looks. <laughs> Here's hoping. The United States to adopt the metric system. <laughs> we should. Absolutely, we should. Except for temperature, I like Fahrenheit better. But absolutely, we should. And we just we just failed. Like in the seventies, here comes the metric system, and but they just didn't, they, they didn't commit. You got to commit. Like you can't just I mean, you can't put out a two dollar bill and not commit. You That's know true. what I mean? But at least scientists uh, in the U.S. use metrics. Yeah, a lot. We yeah. use it a lot. Yeah. I still think except that one time that they didn't, and the thing crashed on Mars. Right. Right. That did happen. That did happen. That's what they did. Yep. 
Evan, yeah. Is now is this the the head transplant news item that we're getting to here? <laughs> really it looks like. Can everyone yeah, see what's going on up there in that it's graphic? It's a little us. it's a little low to see. What yeah. is happening what, there? What Evan? is going on here? All right. So this this news item comes from Taiwan or Formosa if you prefer. And uh, uh, the headline from the Daily Mail reads, Cutting-edge massage, new therapy to de-stress involving being pounded with meat cleavers. <laughs> Seriously. Did Evan. they say cutting-edge? Yeah. Seriously, come on. It, it Evan gets must better. love it gets that better. I did a little more research on this, and another, another news outlet had an article, and they called it, Leave it to Cleaver. Oh. <laughs> Evan is giddy over that. <laughs> how many, I, I how many people did not resist. get... Leave so, it to Cleaver. Oh, come on. Everyone <laughs> no, got it. Everybody got it. Really? Everyone got that. Awesome. I got it. Yeah. I know that one. See? Wow. There, there is a circle in hell for headline writers. So who's... <laughs> <laughs> I have a quick question, Evan. Yeah. I know you haven't even started your news item oh, yet. The whole room was like, what the hell? Um, who is... Who is more stupid in this picture? The person who was administering or the person who said, yeah, you could do that to my neck? <laughs> I think the They're still one. figuring it out. It's a, it's a tight race. Um, well, obviously the Daily Mail article um, concentrates on this being a spa treatment um, in which these meat cleavers are chopped, and that's how they describe it, chopped across their bodies, their necks, and their faces even. They put it right up to their faces. Now it's not funny anymore. We're not talking about the back ends, the, the flat ends of the cleaver. We are talking about the sharp knifed edges of, of the cleavers. The How blade, do they do the that? Blades. The cleavers are pressed in rhythmic motions with nothing but a thin piece of material, or in this case a thick towel, oh, okay. separating their skin from the blade. But in my research also I saw pictures of them using nothing Nothing to protect the the person. They actually the blade, right on this blade right on the skin, the blade right against the skin. No, Evan, they were using their kung fu to go right. <laughs> you would trust that, right? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it must be a really dull blade then. There's well, no way yeah, you're those knives are not extraordinarily yeah. sharp, but still, I would be worried when the two of them intersect. It could have like that. <laughs> You know, the, your skin could get trapped between the two oh, edges. Oh, like what, a is pinch going on yes. there? Yeah. 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 I don't like it. I don't the, like uh, it. the Daily Mail article, they interviewed, uh, her name was Sai Mei Fang, and she's the owner of the place called Ancient Art of Knife Therapy Education Center in the Taipei. Ancient Art. Ancient yes. Art. Uh, the treatment, she said that the treatment is originally from China. It's 2,500 years old. That's Everything has a yin and a yang, hence we use two knives, yin and yang. <laughs> yin, yin. <laughs> Uh, the practice apparently stimulates cell renewal and makes the body relax. How it, it stimulates cell renewal, I think it would be cell removal. Maybe it was a typo or something like that. Now, there's actually a more serious aspect to, to this knife therapy, and it came from another article that I found, this one from uh, the L.A. Times years earlier, in which they interviewed another practitioner of knife therapy, and they don't use it for massage. They use it for all sorts of fantastical health claims. Uh, that practitioner's name is George Pan, and he claims that his knife massage therapy releases the body's stored energy, increases blood flow, and washes away harmful toxins. He Washes away? Washes away harmful toxins. I think people are liking increases blood flow out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? Definitely increases hey, can you do this on my penis? I have erectile dysfunction. Make sure you get a different way on that yeah. joke. Uh, he speaks about chi, energy points throughout the body that become blocked, and of course this technique with the knives relieves those blockages. Where have we ever heard that before in, yeah. in the world of crank, Crankville? Um... And it works better than acupuncture needles to release and transmit well, wait, the now, energy. This is awesome because now we have pseudoscience fighting itself. That's right. 
That's yeah. they, they Needles versus knives. They should have said it works as well as acupuncture, yeah. and that would have been a correct statement. Yeah. yeah. That, that, would have, that would have been. He also claims that uh, it can cure sicknesses, including cancer. So this is, oh. this is the dangerous part. Yeah. Yep. Uh, releasing the patient's energies through regular knife massage. Regular. You have to go back every week, apparently. Uh, hits these vital energy points that can ease the adverse effects of uh, things like chemotherapy, if you've already gone through cancer. And, uh, and it helps with hair loss and uh, nausea, any, any nauseous effects And they can give you a haircut while they're doing haircut. it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Now, he doesn't uh, do it hard enough to cause any bleeding, um, but uh, one particular patient was in there because they had, were having liver problems, and they went to this practitioner to help them with, uh, with their liver. And he said, here's, here's a quote. He says, apparently they were there while he was doing the technique, and this, this, this practitioner said, you hear that sound like a drum? And he's tapping it on his liver. He says, that's too much drinking. Chop, chop, chop. The pain will go away. Good. It's good that he said that. Yeah. Because the words activate the knives, right? Yeah, well, you know. Chop, chop, chop. Yeah. Chop, chop, chop. chop, chop. Yeah. Uh, apparently, lightly tapping the corner of the cleaver on your hairline down to the eyelid uh, will relieve your headache as well. Right, Steve? Is that what yeah. you do at uh, Yale? You know, but if, if, if anything goes wrong, then they could just consult that Italian surgeon who will do the head transplant. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. They could do that. They'll fix things back up. They could do that. With a cleaver, nonetheless. <laughs> right. So this is, you know, this, again, is a reminder that the, the world of woo is often beyond parody, right? Yeah. You can't make up anything more ridiculous than this. This, this could be, you know, a Mitchell and Webb skit, and yeah. we would buy it as fake. Maybe this is fake. Who knows? Like, I, right. you, you, know, you know what I mean? You, you can never, it's just beyond parody. Crazy. <laughs> what else can you say? What else can you say? That's more pithy. All right. All right, Bob, you're going to give us a very quick discussion <clears throat> about what's going on here. Sound. Yes, he, sound. He, Steve mouths to me two minutes ago, Bob, quick, right? Wait. <laughs> ready for quick. Um, so, okay, so engineers have designed ultrasonic sound that they claim can be picked up by a microphone but not by, by human ears. And if you think about that, Cool, but that doesn't make any sense because microphones are designed to operate within the range of human hearing, right? 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. It doesn't make sense. So how, how could they possibly do this with ultrasonic sound that is beyond, say, beyond 20,000 or 25,000, say 30, 40, 50,000 hertz? How does that work? So this is their, this is their idea. They create these two ultrasonic tones. Say one is at 40, kilo, 40 kilohertz, the other one's at 50 kilohertz. And the sound goes into the microphone, into the power amplifier of the microphone. The amplifier amplifies it, right? That's what amplifiers do. But also, because it's ultrasonic, they also interact with the, with the mechanics of the microphone in a nonlinear way, a chaotic way, um, a counterintuitive way. When that happens, the frequency multiplies. And when you have frequencies that are multiplying in this way, it, they add and they subtract. So if you've got a 50 kilohertz and 40 kilohertz frequencies going in there, you, the difference is 10 kilohertz, and that's what a microphone can pick up. That's within human hearing. But the human so, ear wouldn't pick that up. The human ear would not pick it up until we become robots. You're, there's nothing nonlinear happening in, happening in your ear in that way. So until you would not we hear anything. Until we become robots. What? Until we become robots. Yeah, then, then, we, okay. then we could hear it. So, I mean, so what it's hearing, though, it's called a shadow. This is basically white noise. Ultrasonic signals going in, creating this shadow white noise that humans cannot hear until you play it back. Then the 
the talking is drowned out and all you hear is the white noise. So that's their plan. So what can, what could they do with this? They could, if you want to have a very, very private conversation, Karen and I could turn on our ultrasonic speakers, have our conversation and be fairly confident that no one's going to be able to record that. A cone of silence? Cone, yes, a cone of silence. Oh. Wow. What? Wow. Awesome. So you could do it at movie theater so that people can't pull out their, their camcorder and, and, and record the movie or a concert so you can't illegally uh, copy the, uh, the music or whatever. Oh, that's so funny. When you said you could do it in movie theaters, I immediately went to like, Courtney and I can talk in the back of the, and not piss yeah. anybody off. <laughs> not, yeah. I went no, to another place. Not like that. Yeah. Um, the internet of things where everything is basically on the internet, the, with, for them to communicate, instead of using Bluetooth, they're saying that you could possibly use the, these ultrasonic frequencies. Uh, Steve, you've got Alexa at home, that the computer that you could talk to and answer questions and give you information. The Google right? Home. Yeah. Google Home. You could, to prevent unauthorized recording of your voice, you could use, you could use this to potentially do that. Mm. Uh, you, but you could also do kind of nefarious things, like if you're, you could go rob a bank and you play these tones and anyone calling 911, no one's going to really hear what the yeah. person's saying because it's oh, blocking it out. Did you right? think of Not that cool. or was that published in the article? That was in the article. That's, oh, an, okay. that's an idea. Yeah, that's good. Um, they Just also, checking. The article also mentioned something about um, a hearing aid, so, right? A, a hearing aid, it's got microphones, it's, it's, it's it's going through the system, and you play these tones, and and like my parents, right, right, guys, our yeah. my pa- our parents have have hearing aids, and uh, they would not be happy if you played these tones. But you know, it it made me think that made me really think that I could play these ultrasonic tones when they're watching Fox News and they wouldn't hear it. So, so note to self, ultrasonic sabotage project. All right, don't say anything. Right. All right, is that quick enough? That's quick. Yep, I like it. All right, we're going to move right on. Uh, Kara, so you're going to do a kind of a special, what's the word? For this yeah, episode? I thought we would do something fun um, this week. So, Portmanteau, if you've heard that word. I'm saying it very French. Portmanteau, portmanteau, people pronounce it differently. Um, the first meaning, it was a large suitcase. Like, the, the, the original etymology um, is from porter and, and mantle, and together it, it was a large suitcase. But the next meaning, and the meaning that we're going to be um, dealing with today, was actually coined by Lewis Carroll. And he wrote in Through the Looking Glass... Um, when he was talking about the words um, that were used in Jabberwocky, he was talking about slithy, which means slimy and light, or mimsy, which is miserable and flimsy. He said, you see, it's like a portmanteau. There are two meanings packed up into one word. It's like a contraction, except it's not two words in sequence that have been smushed together. It's just two words that mean different things that have been smushed together so that you have a more complex meaning. So I decided to curate a list of portmanteau, and I was going to ask the panelists here if they could tell me what the original words were that make them up. So we're going to go here in, um, let's see if it's in the same order. Oh yeah. So we're starting easy. We're starting easy and then we're going to move on. Um, Brexit. That's easy. <laughs> yeah, of yeah, course everyone British exit. Me yeah. British exit, right? Britain yeah. and exit. Good, good. British exit. Smog. Smoke and fog. Uh, smoke, smoke and fog. Smoke and fog. Yes. Didn't realize that until I looked it up. Um, blush. Blush. Um, uh, it's blood and lush. It's blood and rush. 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 When blood, blood rush. rushes blood to rush. your face. Like blood. Blood. Yeah. Rush of blood. It's a rush like of it. blood. Chortle. This was also coined by Lewis Chuckle Carroll. And snortle. Chuckle and snort. Snortle, yeah. yeah, that's a Lewis Carroll word. Pretty Chuckle good. and snort. And now chortle is a, it's a word. I guess I never knew what chortle meant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, now you know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
It's <laughs> <laughs> so terrible. It's, it's like my Darth Vader. Yeah. Um, what's a Labrador? A uh, Labrador and a poodle. poodle. Yeah, poodle. Labrador and a poodle. Yeah. What's a sitcom? Situation, Situation comedy. comedy. Ooh, yeah. you got that one fast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, what yeah. is a Muppet? Uh, a marionette and a puppet. Good job. Oh, yeah. Nice. It's a marionette and a puppet. Marionette yeah. and puppet. Yeah. Okay. What's cosplay? Costume. 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 Role play. Role play. There you oh, go. yes. Oh, yeah. And we did this one as a recent what's the word, so you guys should all get this right. What's epigenetics? Epiphenomenal <laughs> genetics. Um, it's, a, it's an epi pen and... <laughs> it's epigenesis and course, genetics. Yes, Originally it's called epigenesis. Okay. Mm. What's Botox? Botulism, toxin. Yep. Botulinum, Botulinum toxin. toxin. Yep. yep. What is an endorphin? Oh, We're getting into science one. ones. Endogenous morphine. 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 Yeah. Yeah. yeah, endogenous morphine. That's why there's so many similarities there. What's a cyborg, Bob? Cybernetic organism. There you oh go. My God. Yeah, come on. Good. That oh, is such an awesome word. What's a vitamin? Ooh, I know this. Vitamin. Vital amine. It's a vital right. amine. What's an amine? Yeah. So. Yeah, so this is, a, this is when it was first chemically uh, defined. Yeah, they're amines, just their chemical group. It's a chemical and group. With they're a, vital yeah, because by nitro. definition, a vitamin is something your body can't make for itself, so okay. you have to oh. eat it. Yeah. So it's a vital amine. You have to, and vital in, in medical biology is Vitaly. something you have to consume. Yeah, like but it comes from the root of life. Are amino acids. All right, I have eat. a question. Yeah. Is there, is there a vitamin-like substance that we do make that we just don't call a vitamin? Yeah. Like yeah, what? Plenty. There's other things that we can make for ourselves, so they're not vitamins. Like what? Like vitamin, vitamin D. A vitamin. Wait, wait, wait. Right. We can we make, make vitamin, vitamin D. D. Well, yeah. Why are we so calling need, it a vitamin? Because you need the sunlight. You need. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, so give me an example. You got one? Um, well, that's, that's, yeah, there's a ton of things, but now, of course, I can't think of any. But pretty <laughs> much pretty much every other biochemical thing in your body, you know, that you, that you don't have to eat, that you can synthesize. Okay. Um, insulin. Insulin. But we don't call that vitamin insulin. Yeah. We make you're, you're saying things that are actually sold as vitamins that we can just make yeah. ourselves. That's cool. No, no, I, I just want to know if there's, there are things that act like vitamins in the body, but gotcha. we don't call them vitamins gotcha. because we because. can synthesize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like, so basically all the downstream products of the vitamins, you know, because we make them from the vitamins, though they themselves are not vitamins. Okay. If that yeah. makes sense. Okay. Um, who knows what a modem is? I do. <gasps> modulate, demodulate. Gosh, you guys are too Come good. On. All right. Yeah. So then as a bonus, um, did we include these? Yeah. Okay. I, there are a bunch of companies that, and I started oh, with yeah. an easy one, but there are co- yeah, a bunch of companies that are portmanteaus as well. Super easy. So what's Federal FedEx? Express. Federal Express. I wanted to make sure everybody would get them. Okay. Prevacid. Prevents acid. Good job. Huh. Triscuit. Uh, Triscuit decaphobia. It's a biscuit with <laughs> three ingredients. Oh, yeah. oh very cool. Uh, I never would have guessed that. Triple biscuit. Okay. Verizon. For, it's Horizon and... It is Horizon. Horizon's and, the second word. Uh, vertical? Veritas. <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah, meaning truth. And I didn't yeah. understand why. The word just popped into my head. All right, and here's one that we use all the time on the Skeptics Guide. What is Skype? Speaking type. Right? You try better, man. <laughs> Sky something? Sky. Peer to peer. Skype. Yeah. No. That's where it comes from. My favorite one is the combination of snake and people or sneeple. 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 It's like, <laughs> like sheeple. Yeah. Sheeple. sheeple. That sheeple. That's a good one. Sheeple. That's a really obscure nerdy reference if you got that. Um, I, I thought it was for my daughter who's in the audience. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, What's the time? All right, we're going to skip that one. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll do this news item the show after this one. It's about ticks. 
it can wait. It's fine. We, got, right, we got other stuff. Do you, wait, real quick. Do you guys know what's going on for us? The Novella brothers and our families have to leave one second after the show's over to go to our other brother's second wedding. <laughs> yeah, his first wife is will be surprised. Yeah, she, she doesn't. Yeah. Know. It was the worst kept secret in the world. Yeah. They, they're trying to have a secret wedding. And then they booked it on Nexus weekend. And then Joe calls me. I was like, you guys booked Nexus on my wedding. I was like, you didn't tell us. No, you <laughs> booked your wedding <laughs> on, on Nexus. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, all right, all right. Well, you guys have to leave Nexus to come to my wedding. But it's a secret, so no one's going to know. It's like, yeah. No one's going to know that I'm leaving Nexus, a conference that I'm running, to go to a picnic. <laughs> with, and there's no reason why that's happening. And then I find out less than a week ago that I'm officiating that the wedding. <laughs> That, that was the surprise, Steve. <laughs> so my so he, brother really Joe's has to be there. My brother Joe's fiance says, "Okay, let's go out to dinner." You know, Steve and his wife Jocelyn, and my brother Joe and and his fiance Donna. So they go out to dinner, and it was like, "So, we so Steve, what, what's going to happen at the wedding?" <laughs> Steve's like, "What? You're getting married. You're getting married, right?" But you no, tell but, me. Yeah, but what's, who's, yeah. who's doing it? You are. <laughs> Okay. So then, so then my brother Joe does one of these. <laughs> like, oh shit, I forgot to tell Steve that six months ago. Yeah. It's, so, it's so funny because they, they tried to keep it a secret, even from me. Jay's like, all right, Bob, we're, we're leaving Nexus on Saturday afternoon to go to Joe's picnic. Trust me, we, we need to go. So I'm like, wait, Steve agreed for us to leave in the middle of Nexus? Joe must be getting married. You know, it's like, oh, it, took two, it took half a second for everyone. Want yeah. to figure it out. Okay. So that's what's happening. Um, so very quickly, uh, this has been going around. I'm already getting a ton of emails about it. This may be too soon if you're you know, too busy at being at Nexus to follow the news. Um, this is going around. So women, this is a, a, the, the headline from, uh, what is it, Yahoo News, um, that women have, will, will carry the DNA of every guy they've had sex with. Right, that's the headline. Again, this is the the circle for the headline writers. Which but I this, still think this is a sexist headline. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Yeah, because why wouldn't men? Yeah, why wouldn't men? Not have Doesn't the DNA from the men they have sex with. Exactly. I agree. Good point. So th- this is complete bullshit. I mean, th- this is just not true. But it's always interesting to to back, you know, from to reverse engineer a news story, a science news story from the actual science news item that led to it, mm-hmm. and to try to figure out where did it go wrong. And whose fault is it? Is it the scientist's fault? Is it the press office? Is it, is it, or is this just a, you know, a, a newspaper out of control off the rails? Is this is the, the, the latter one. So they're, they're spreading this as a new, new, as a new study, even though it's a study from 2012. So they just decide it's a slow news day. Let's resurrect this news item from 2012. And then I, re, I actually recognize this from 2012. This is like not new. And the study has absolutely nothing to do with sex, right? That, that is something that they completely invented. The news item, here's actually the news item. It's about male microchimerism, which is it's an interesting thing. So what they find is if you do an autopsy on a woman and you look at the cells in their brain, there are male cells, even in a female's brain. And we know that because there's Y chromosomes, right? There are cells with Y chromosomes. How did they get there? How did cells with Y chromosomes get into a female brain? Um, and, the, and the answer is we don't know, but there are some uh, very plausible hypotheses, none of which include having sex, by the way. Uh, one of them is 
that, um, well, if a, a mother gives birth to a son, right, they carried, a, you know, a boy in their womb for nine months, and we know that women exchange genetic material with their, their fetus over the course of the pregnancy. There's a lot of shuttling going on. They call that shuttling, a lot of genetic shuttling going on. Okay, so some of the, the, their male children's, you know, cells got incorporated into their cells. And okay, that, that happens. That's that should thing. be easy enough to test. Yeah, you, you take test a woman it on a woman who's never had, never had, had birth. Child. But there are women who've never had a male child who have it. Mm-hmm. So, so it's need, more than that. You, so it's more than just that. So okay, maybe they had a miscarriage. They had, and they didn't know, they may, may not have even known it. So that's a hard thing to disprove, you okay. know? Um, but so I think they take women who maybe have never been pregnant. Yeah. And, and see, and then they still have it too. Mm-hmm. So, but there are other hypotheses still. Like, for example, it's possible that they were actually a, a twin and they absorbed their male twin in the womb. Ooh. Even a different placenta? Oh, so it's not the case that all females on autopsy have this. No, no, no. Okay. Just some it's do. Just some of them. Some do. And, and, and so, but you have to explain the ones that don't have male children. Yeah. So that's a, that's a possibility. And then the, the last possibility is that, well, if they have a brother, then the brother could have given his cells to the mother mm-hmm. and then the mother back to the later daughter, right? So brother to mother to daughter. Oh, okay. So wow. that's the, those are all the plausible pathways that they came up with. Again, none of them include getting male DNA from male sexual partners. So is this just, they think of this as, these are like epithelials that are in the womb that never go away and then they become part of the neural tube and go to the brain? Yeah, so it apparently there's a lot of exchange of cells from okay. the placenta and the fetus. It's like one organism, right? So you think about it, like you know, no. a pregnant woman, they have this chimeric organism yeah. in their womb that's half them and half their child, and it's exchanging blood and material. And, and then cells if you eat everything. the placenta, yeah, right, yeah. then your kid gets strep. No, but it isn't. It's pretty incredible then that there's at least a, a solid hypothesis that mom had a previous son and still has some of those yeah. cells in her, you know. Yeah, for the rest of your life womb. you're going to have yeah. them. So and is the this real, dangerous or unhealthy no, in any way? It's pretty, no, it's life. And the, the, the real news item here in the 2012 study, what they, what they were really looking, because we know about this already, this is old news, they wanted to see if they were crossing the blood-brain barrier. That was really their only question. And the answer is yes, they're getting into the brains. So that yeah. was really the only thing that they were addressing. They weren't even addressing how. So they just made that up? They just that made article? that up. So then they say, oh, they, they're, they're trying to hide the real implications of it because it's too, you know, out there. You know, scientists don't do that. And then they went back to a 2009 study. So now this is like, you know, several years later. And in that study, it was just another study of this microchimerism. And they, they also didn't mention sex, but they were, they were exploring what were the possible mechanisms that um, could have led to this. And so, they, so it was just ridiculous. They cited a previous study as if that's part of this conspiracy with this current study, which is not really current, and neither of them have anything to do with having sex. Oh, and God. somehow out of all of that, they got women have the DNA in them from every guy they've had sex with. It has nothing to do with the actual science. And can you, can you show the other article again? Can, I don't know if you guys can see this, but like... She looks horrified by this headline, doesn't she? <laughs> it is. And a he looks bad really picture. happy. With he looks so. completely satisfied. Oh, and yeah. she's like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> so what's the narrative there they're going for? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't it's, know. It's, you're right. You said there's a special circle in hell for headline writers. I think the people oh, yeah. who choose the, the images there are right there go. with them. Yeah. Right, right. It's time for science or Fiction. 
All right. Okay. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And at live shows, we're going to challenge you all, the audience, as well. Is everyone ready for this? Okay. These are fun. I think these are fun. Here we go. Item number one. A new study finds that states um, with stricter child safety seat laws, including significant fines, on average reduces the rate of unrestrained children in half. So the number of children who are unrestrained in cars is cut in half when states enact a stricter child safety seat law. All right, item number two, a new Baltimore study finds that poorer neighborhoods have larger mosquito populations. And item number three, researchers find that young children learn twice as many new words when read to from books with only one picture per page than ones with two or more pictures. So they learn more words with fewer pictures. Okay, so we're going to poll the audience first, and then we're going to poll the the panel, and then we'll go back to the audience. Um, Okay, so if you think the item about uh, child seat safety laws is the fiction, clap when I drop my hand. Ready? Good, Good work. If you think the one about mosquitoes and poor neighborhoods is the fiction, clap. And if you think that uh, children learning more words from fewer pictures is the fiction, clap. All right, so there's a Ooh. clear preference for number three. Yeah, I would say the, so. The, uh, the, yeah, the book learning one from the audience. One and two I thought were about equal. Mm. Um, so we're going to start on the far right with our guest, which is tradition, Richard. Sorry okay. about that. So um, let us know what you think. Which one do you think is the I'll fiction? cut to the chase because of timing reasons. No, actually, we have good time, so we're good. So oh, good. well, in that case, <laughs> let me tell you a story. <laughs> you don't have to rush. I'm just saying you don't have to rush. You don't have to blabber either. But you <laughs> mustic, mustic, anybody? Are you guys familiar, by the way, oh with my the God. Must- Just say no. Australian candy. Jay's children are addicted to musk. I'll take a little piece. I'll, I'll try it again. He okay. said it tastes right. the way that musk smells. Yes. It does. It is objectively gross. I mean, we... <laughs> Yeah. Okay, since we've got time. Only if you don't like nail polish remover, it tastes in your mouth. <laughs> well, I'm going to call... No, I'll be quick. I think, because... I would think that the rates of um, unrestrained children would be more. It would cut it. Not Half is not very... I think it would be a, a lot more. I think it would be 80% or something. So I'm going to call that one the fiction, and I'm going to go with the other two as being the fact. I think the words, the, the reading to kids, and the, uh, the poorer neighborhoods having mosquito problems. Oh, now I'm not so sure. Look, no, I'll, I'll still go... I'll, I'll call the top one the fiction, the um, the safety belt. Because you think the laws are m- even more effective. They cut it down by even more. I think they, they would cut it down okay. even more, yeah. Okay. Evan? I was thinking just maybe the opposite. I don't know that how up to speed people are really on the, all the child safety laws there are in their particular state. I think uh, they just think they know what's best for their own family. I don't think there's compliance uh, that's having any effect on it. That's why I think that one's fiction. You think the other two were good? Uh, yeah, I think the other two are good. Real quick, Baltimore, uh, I think that's right. Um, I know we uh, read articles recently about uh, them spraying for mosquitoes and stuff in Miami with the Zika control and all that, so I can see how poor neighborhoods, they may not be able to afford it in, in some yeah. sense. 
And then uh, children's uh, seeing more words, fewer pictures. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a direct correlation there. Okay, Jay? I think the mosquito one is science. It makes perfect sense. I think that the, uh, the first one about the child seats, I, I, I agree with Evan. I think it's obvious a lot of people, I'm a parent, I've never heard any of the laws. I mean, right. I'm just using an anecdote, but I mean, I, I've never heard anything. I just get, I'm, I hope that I'm buying the best car seat when I go shopping, and that's, I'm hoping that that's, being, that's where my compliance is, but I've never heard about any of the state's laws at all where I live. Um, and I'm, I've been really thinking about this third item, about if, the, if a child's book has two or more pictures, that it... it <clears throat> The idea here is that they're not going to learn as many words, and I think it's the exact opposite. I think that if there's more pictures, contextually, they will get it better, and they'll be able to associate words to the pictures that they're seeing. And another thing that I do is I use the pictures. When I'm, when I'm reading the words, I'm pointing to things in the pictures. I don't know if... And you've learned a lot, Jay. I've learned a lot, yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> no comeback at all. I'm just like, yeah. So that one, that, to me, that one is the fiction. Okay, Kara? Yeah, I, I've been thinking that since the beginning. I mean, when you look through all of these, I first wrote down that the child seat um, item is reasonable, the uh, mosquito item is reasonable, and the words and pictures item is less reasonable. That could mean that it's exactly the opposite answer, because this is what Steve does to us. But in my mind, sure, a lot of people don't know about child seat laws, and what he's saying here is that in states that have stricter laws where people could get fined, so whether you know about it or not, you get a ticket, you're going to learn from that, uh, compliance goes up. Um, I see commercials all the time in L.A. about child seats and, like, is your kid in the right size seat? And they show, like, nine-year-olds in booster seats. And I'm like, nine-year-olds are supposed to be? Apparently, up until you're, like, four and a half feet tall, or I don't know, that's, uh, don't quote sorry. me on that. But up, up until you're a certain height, you're supposed to be in a booster seat. I think most people don't know that. They just think of babies as needing car seats. So it's height and weight. Um, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever weight, it is. Yeah. Um, I, I think number two is definitely <laughs> science. And if this is the fiction, I'm going to lose my mind. But definitely in developing nations there are bigger problems with mosquito eradication I think it's an education thing more than anything there's just no um, funding for education to get people to get rid of standing water um, but I was thinking the exact same thing as Jay I think that if there are more pictures because this says young children right Yes. Yeah, that young children. Obviously, if you're 14 and your book is full of pictures, you know you might be. They're being read too. They're yeah. not reading. Yeah, yeah, so young children, you're being read too. If you can associate the word with an image, I think you're going to learn it better. So I'm going to say that that's the fiction. All right, Bob. It's two to two up here. So say again. It's two to two. Yeah. Um, so what do you say? Yeah, there's not a, much I can much I can add to a lot of this, but I would say for the unrestrained restrained kids kind of makes sense, yeah. For the mosquito one, my first thought, my go-to thought for that one was like, well, okay, the poor neighborhoods, maybe they don't have central air conditioning, so they don't, they're not sequestered inside the house on the hot days. It doesn't matter. They're just outside, inside, and so more exposed skin for the mosquitoes. That's kind of what I thought. But the standing water also sounded good, Kara. The third one, um, that yeah, that one... To me, it was not just the more pictures, but I think the fewer words. If you're not hit with a plethora of all these different words, you've got fewer words that you then associate those fewer words with multiple pictures. I think, yeah, that makes sense that you could learn more words more quickly that way. So I'll say three is fiction as well. Oh, okay, so we got uh, Richard and Evan thinking and that... And Bob. You said no, that no. was fiction also, right? No, no, no. So no, the, no. The, the, the those two guys on the right... Well, you the, and Jay. The, the, gotcha. the seat laws, the fiction. Yeah, you and Bob think that... 
the um, the reading is a fiction, and, and you all agree with number two with the with the mosquitoes. Yeah. Let's go back to the audience. So the audience overwhelmingly thought that um, the reading was the fiction. Let's see if you guys influenced them at all. So if you think that the seatbelt restriction one is the fiction, clap. Oh, that's less or fewer. Us, no. <laughs> if you think uh. the mosquitoes is the fiction, clap. Uh oh, we know what's coming. If you think that. The reading is the fiction. Ooh, All right. Stronger, yeah. So none of the panelists and very few people in the audience thought that the mosquitoes is the fiction, so oh, let's no. go to that one he first. He looks really excited. Yeah, he's... <laughs> Don't make assumptions. A new Baltimore study finds that poor neighborhoods have larger mosquito populations. So that's interesting. Let me give you a couple of things that you might not have thought of before I do the reveal. See, he's not jumping. He's not jumping to the fiction. So I think we got him on this one. <laughs> that's my theory. Just trying to drag out the suspense. <laughs> so, so one variable that actually could could cut the other way is that, um, and this was this was part of the study. I won't tell you what the bottom line was till the end. That uh, wealthier neighborhoods water their lawns. In the summer, okay, and that actually has a huge impact on increasing mosquito populations huh. because if you because the mosquito populations plummet during a dry stretch, right? So oh. uh, that actually is a factor that works against huh. wealthier neighborhoods. Um, you are right; it ultimately comes down to standing water. That's that's the the, the factor. So. A number of, of vege, amount of vegetation was a factor. Amount of precipitation, amount of watering. These were all factors. But the the biggest factor, and the one that actually modified all the other factors, was the number of abandoned buildings. Mm, that, that was the sense. dominant uh-huh. factor. Mm. And that and the and there was much more abandoned buildings in poorer neighborhoods. Um, for example, I think it was in wealthy neighborhoods, one percent of buildings that they surveyed were abandoned. In middle class. Five percent and poor neighborhoods, twenty-seven percent. Wow. Okay. Oh, Baltimore. This is in Baltimore. Yeah. yeah. So, and if, uh, if, of course, if there's you have an abandoned building, no one's going there to make sure that there isn't standing water. Mm-hmm. You know, and also uh, garbage, like unpicked up garbage, is a huge, yeah. a huge breeding ground for mosquitoes. Uh, and again, you know, detritus garbage being left in abandoned lots, abandoned right. buildings, etc., is, is just a breeding ground. Uh, for mosquitoes. They were specifically looking at the tiger mosquito, which is actually an invasive species in the United States. Com- comes from China. They said probably from t- car tires being <laughs> imported, but mm. whatever. And then the tiger mosquito is capable of transmitting. It's a vector for disease. It is a de- disease vector, and it uh, can carry the Zika virus. So that's why they're concerned about it. Yeah. Um, sure. Also, an interesting thing about about the tiger mosquito, and this is how you could probably know if you're being menaced by a tiger mosquito, um, the, the more common mosquitoes that we're used to in New York and in the, in the Northeast come out at, what, twilight, right? They come yeah, out dusk and dawn. Dusk yeah. and dawn. Yeah. They're not out in the hot sun, so that's when you, know, you have to put your bug zapper out there. Tiger mosquitoes Wait, are bug out. Bug zappers don't work. They don't work. They don't work, right? Depending on the bug zapper. What do you mean yeah. they don't work? They don't zap bugs? Let's just say DEET. That's but when no. you should wear DEET. That works. How about the citronella candles? No, they don't work. Either. Those don't work. Yeah. Let's go with deep. Yeah. All right. Deep. Deep. That's when you take your anti-mosquito measures, whatever they are. <laughs> um, but tiger mosquitoes are active during the day. Jerks. So they will oh, feed on you in the in the noonday sun. So if you're getting bitten by a mosquito in the bright sunlight, tiger. that's a tiger mosquito. Problem. Tiger mosquitoes don't care. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> and they're they're actually stripy. Like if you can look up close, they look they're stripy like tigers. Look at the tiger mosquito. Go look at them. It's biting you. Yeah. Right, guys. You know what I'm doing here. Come on. 
Is that Honey Badger? Honey Badger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Badger. All right. So that one is obviously signs. So oh. so far so good. Which is today my theory was next? right. Doesn't matter. Number I guess. one. Okay, we'll go to number one. A new study finds that states with stricter child safety seat laws, including significant fines, on average reduces the rate of unrestrained children in half. Richard and Evan think this one is the fiction. And two people in the audience. <laughs> and two people in the audience. Raise your hands. You think this is the fiction? <laughs> oh, oh, really? That's more than clapped right there. A few people think this one now is the fiction. The rest of the panel and most of the audience think this one is science. And this is the fiction. Oh, my God. God. Well done. I maintain my perfect record on yes. science or yes. fiction. Yes. Good to sure. you. Although you were right for the wrong reason today because... I don't care. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I have to point it out. Why? When? It had no effect. Zero effect. Oh, what a bummer. Oh, wow. But you have to dig a little bit deeper into what I mean by that before it, I think, will make sense. So, again, I said unrestrained children. Now, restrained is either seatbelt or a car seat, mm-hmm. right? So what the laws do is make parents who are strapping kids into car seats in, stra- in, with seatbelts uh, using seatbelts to restrain their kids by car seats. Mm-hmm. So they shifted from seatbelts to car seats. But parents who weren't seatbelting them still did nothing. They huh. didn't go, they didn't do anything. Um, that's what they found in the study. And the question is, why is that the case? Um, so first of all, the numbers are lower than I thought. You know, total compliance is only like at about 17%. It's pretty What? Low. Yeah, but, the, but it's mainly, it's not from the infants from the, I think everyone knows you can't take your, your infants home from the hospital without a car seat, right? But it's the older children. Yeah. And, it, and most people don't realize, like, up to age seven, pretty much, by height, weight, and age, they should be in a car seat. That's yeah, I meant seven when I said yeah. nine, for sure. I yeah. can't tell the difference. So it's really the parents <laughs> of older children who don't realize that you actually still need to be having, it could be a booster seat, but it needs to be some kind of seat. It's not just a regular old seatbelt. Um, and the other thing is, is that probably a lot of parents who, are, who aren't using car seats can't afford it, and so yeah. mm-hmm. changing the law isn't going to have much of an effect. Uh, so that perhaps we need more support, you know, for for those parents. So this study literally just looked at compliance; it didn't look at mortality or anything. And so it's not like the. I mean, yes, obviously you want to minimize child death from car accidents, but really you want to minimize the severity of the injury, and they didn't even look at that. And of course, a six-year-old who's in a seatbelt, but not a car seat, could still, still get suffer injured. injuries. Yeah, yeah. they might not get killed, the from the, but they won't, they'll, get, they'll, get, they'll be a little bigger injury. Okay. This means that researchers find that young children learn twice as many new words when read to from books with only one picture per page than ones with two or more pictures is science, <laughs> and the, which is very interesting. Yeah. And the, uh, the reason for that, the, what, what they suspect and what they found, you know, when they were looking at the actual examples of parents reading to children or, or to, to subjects, was that um, the children are too distracted by the pictures. <laughs> and they also don't, there's too many things to potentially associate the words with, and so they don't make the association. Huh. Whereas if you have one picture, they know that everything you're talking about relates to that one picture. Mm. They don't have to change their focus. Kids are really terrible at changing their focus. Because huh. that actually, you know, focusing your attention is a very much neurologically mature behavior. It requires a lot of energy. It requires fully myelinated frontal lobes, and kids don't have that. They're, they're terrible at maintaining their attention. And so giving them even a second picture to distract them was enough to really <clears throat> significantly negatively affect their learning from the experience. Myelation so, is a factor? Myelation. In focus, really? 
Well, frontal lobes, because your frontal lobes give you focus. It's very high energy, and kids can't focus. That's why you don't even, like ADHD, you can't even diagnose that until kids are seven, because everyone less than seven has ADHD, yeah, right? right? That's just, that's just, <laughs> seriously, that's, that's what it is. Every, every child it, you know, can't focus their attention. That's normal. It's developmentally appropriate. And so when you're designing you know, interactions to maximize learning in young children, you have to... Um, you know, minimize distractions. So Jay, I'm, I'm sorry. I promise I won't tell Dylan to focus anymore. <laughs> focus. <laughs> All right. Richard, good congratulations. Job, Evan, good job. Good job, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Good All job right. to the 10 people in the yeah, audience. Yeah. 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 Okay, Evan, take us out with a quote. There must be no barriers to freedom of inquiry. There is no place for dogma in science. The scientist is free and must be free to ask any questions, to doubt any assertion, to seek for any evidence, to correct any errors. That is J. Robert Oppenheimer. Jay. I, I wonder why he would have a chip on his shoulder about that. About yeah, I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah, Bother yeah. the nuclear You can ask any age. question. Nothing's <laughs> off the table. You know, yeah. Right, right. Did anyone here read or watch the series Manhattan? Yeah. Um, that's actually very good. I think, it only, I think they killed it after the first season, right? The two seasons. It's interesting. What, 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 What's in, interesting, I, which I know to be true, but which Time's up, conveyed, gotta go to the wedding. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <But> just, <laughs> one, one thing I want to point out is, you know, how close, they really didn't know that, that we were going to beat the Germans to the A-bomb, and that yeah. was, the whole war really was riding on that. Yeah. Whole, and they didn't know. They had no idea what the Germans were doing, other than they were racing to the, to the finish line, too. The stakes were high. They were really, really high. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. The fate of the world was at stake, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that on Star Trek as well. You can't let the Nazis get the A-bomb first. There you go. Everything <laughs> yeah. you need to know, Star Trek. <laughs> all right, well, thank you all for joining me. Thanks, thank Dr. You, thank, thank, you. You. thank you all for joining thank us you, in Texas. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Thank you, everyone. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.